John 3. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? And Jesus answered him, are you a teacher of Israel and you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if, if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, and whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. Bishop uh, Jesse Ryle of Liverpool and a bygone uh, generation said this of uh, John chapter 3. He said, a man may be ignorant of many things in religion and yet be saved. But to be ignorant of the matters that are handled in this chapter is to be on the broad road. Such was the importance that J.C. Ryle uh, placed on this passage of Scripture. In other words, you can afford to get any number of things wrong in life without it spelling absolute disaster. You can fail your exams and still succeed. There's always the resits come September or whenever uh, resits are held nowadays. You can pick the wrong job, the wrong career, and uh, you can still get through. But if you fail to get the matter of how to get into heaven right, the consequences will obviously be serious and eternal. So this issue and this chapter is of the utmost importance. And it's not only of the utmost importance uh, for us, it, 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 it was of the utmost importance for John the evangelist as he writes his gospel. Because it's interesting that it is the first topic that John has Jesus deal with in his gospel. Now, John is writing at the end of the century. 
Um, he is writing reflectively. There's already three other Gospels in circulation. And John is writing his material uh, reflectively. He shapes his material theologically. Some would argue that he builds it around seven signs that Jesus performed, be that uh, as it may. The point remains that John's gospel is a deeply theological gospel. Um, that much is clear as soon as you begin to read it. In John chapter 1, verse 1, his gospel begins unlike the others. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us, and we beheld His glory, the glory of the only, as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So, immediately, as soon as you start to read John's gospel, it becomes clear that it's a deeply theological uh, issue. So, it's interesting that the first issue, the first theological issue that John has Jesus deal with in his gospel, teach on, is uh, the issue of the new birth. The importance of uh, the new birth is also uh, clear from the fact that this statement does not fall from the lips of any preacher uh, like me or uh, Robin or any of the staff team or any of the folks that preach here in Chalmers. It actually falls from the lips of Jesus Himself. And anything that Jesus would have to say in regard to how a person should get into heaven is obviously of the utmost importance and cannot be ignored. It must be taken seriously. We must understand what it is Jesus is saying to us in John chapter 3. Now, let me set a little bit, uh, uh, this passage a little bit in context and, and share a little bit about the background of it to you. I think it is interesting uh, and, and worthwhile picking up that John 3 comes after John 2, not exactly rocket uh, science, I know. But uh, in John chapter 2, at the end of it, Jesus cleanses the temple. And uh, during His stay for the Passover in Jerusalem, he not only cleanses the temple, but performs a number of miracles or miraculous signs, to use John's lingo. And those who were living in Jerusalem, many came to believe on him uh, as a result of seeing the miracles that he performed. But it's interesting that at the end of John chapter 2, it says Jesus did not believe in them. John Blanchard wrote a book a while ago, a good few years ago, Does God Believe in Atheists? And I wonder if he picked it up at the end of John chapter 2. Jesus did not believe in them, even though they, by all appearances, had come to believe in Him. Now, one of these people who had witnessed the miracles, I am sure, and heard something of what Jesus was teaching, was a man called Nicodemus. He was a member of the Pharisees. He was actually uh, had a place on the Sanhedrin, the ruling council of the Jews, and he came to visit Jesus one night, late at night, we are told, to see what more he could discover. Now, we can't really be sure why he came at night. The, that question isn't really answered for us in the text. Maybe Jesus was difficult to get to during the hours of, of daylight. People were constantly thronging to him, listening to him. People were always around him. Jesus would have been a hard person uh, to get time alone with. 
Maybe um, he was following the custom of the day. For rabbis, they would meet in the evening late at night to discuss the latest theological conundrum, and they would thrash it out together. So maybe Nicodemus is just following that um, tradition. But I wonder, and uh, I've wondered for a long time, and I still wonder, if Nicodemus wants to keep his visit to Jesus quiet. He doesn't want his fellow Pharisees to know that he has been visiting this Galilean miracle worker who has been in Jerusalem over the feast of the Passover. He's a little bit embarrassed that he would think that this Jesus was worth talking to and discussing theology with and finding out a little bit more about. I think he's a little bit embarrassed. And I think you detect that in the language that he uses, even when he meets Jesus, he says, we have heard that you are a teacher come from God, because no one could do the things that you do unless God was with him. We, was he really a delegate of the Pharisees? Was he really there representing them? Is he really speaking on their behalf, or is he just trying to coach or hedge or… Uh, guise the fact that he had come on his own to talk to Jesus because there was something about Jesus that he wanted to, 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 to discover. He wanted to find out more about this Jesus. And uh, he doesn't want to make a big show of it. He wants to keep it really quiet. But he still comes, doesn't he? And that's to Nicodemus's credit. He still comes. Because there's lots of people, and maybe you're one of them, and, and you've been keeping the fact that you've been thinking about Jesus and attending church fairly quiet amongst your rugby friends and your cricket friends and your football friends or whatever you socialize. You wouldn't want them to know that you were thinking a little bit more about Jesus, that you'd been attending church. And I want to encourage you, at least you're seriously thinking about it, and at least you've come. And this is the most important topic that you will ever think about during the course of your life, the contents of John chapter 3, the most important topic that you will ever think about during the course of your life. Well, I was interested to read a letter that George Whitfield wrote to Benjamin Franklin a while ago, and this is what he said. Franklin, of course, was involved in discovering and harnessing electricity. And George Whitfield wrote to him, and he says, I find that you've become very famous and learned in the learned world, he said. You've made such progress in, invest, in, in investigating the mysteries of electricity. I now humbly urge you to give diligent heed to the mystery of the new birth. It is most important and interesting study, and when you have mastered it, it will richly repay you for your pains. Well, three things from this text of Scripture. Um, the first one will be a little longer than the last two, so don't panic. The first one is, I want you to think about this declaration that Jesus made. You must be born again. We need to understand what it is Jesus is saying when He makes that declaration. Secondly, I want us to think about the explanation that Jesus gives in relation to all of this. Things that are born of the things that are of the flesh, born of the flesh are flesh, and things that are of the spirit are 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 spirit or spiritual. And he goes on to explain that a little bit with the use of a of an of an analogy. 
feel desperately tongue-tied this morning. Not sure why that is. You must be all scaring the life out of me or something. And finally, um, we'll not only think about the explanation, but we'll think about the illustration. So those are the three things, declaration, explanation, and illustration. And we'll begin with the declaration uh, that Jesus makes. Now, isn't it interesting that when Nicodemus came to visit Jesus, he uh, He didn't give Nicodemus an opportunity to ask any questions. Jesus himself launched the conversation and uh, steered it in the direction that he wanted it to go in. And he did so by answering questions, and we don't really know whether Nicodemus was uh, asking these questions that Jesus was answering. Jesus simply made this declaration to Nicodemus as he comes to him, you must be born again or you will not see, you cannot see the kingdom of God. And sometimes God does that. Sometimes God breaks into our thoughts and starts uh, to cause us to think about answers to questions that we weren't even asking but maybe answers to questions that we needed to ask and that we needed to know the answer to. Well, three things that I want to try and pull out of uh, this declaration. I want you to think about what is needed, who needs it, and why it's needed. So, three very simple things. What is needed, who needs it, and finally, why it's needed. So, first of all, what is needed? Jesus told Nicodemus that he needs to be born again, or it could be translated Uh, born from above. The two mean exactly the same thing. And it carries this idea of a person who is dead in sins, according to Ephesians 2 verse 1. They're dead in trespasses and sins, yet the Holy Spirit comes upon them to infuse them with spiritual life, and thereby they are enabled to turn from their sin and their brokenness And they are enabled by the Holy Spirit who infuses them with new life to put their faith and trust in the work of Jesus Christ upon the cross and begin to follow Him. That's what is involved in in the word, uh, in the term being born again. Being born again. And uh, that's what Jesus said to Nicodemus. Nicodemus, you must be born again. And of course, in all uh, sincerity, Nicodemus is asking Jesus the question, what do you mean? You, you've got to be born again. You've got to be born twice. What do you mean by that? Do, does someone have to enter their mother's womb for a second time and be born all over again? Is that what you mean when you say someone's got to be born again? So, Jesus then elaborates a little bit on his first declaration. And in verse 5, so verse 3 says you've got to be born again. In verse 5, he puts it a slightly different way. It's exactly the same thing, but he puts it a slightly different way, and he says you need to be born of water and of the Spirit. So whatever born again means, it means to be born of water and of the Spirit. Now, it's fairly obvious, isn't it, that the reference to the Spirit is a reference to the Holy Spirit, and uh, it's fairly obvious to most of us that that is a reference to the fact that we need the new life, the spiritual life that only the Holy Spirit can give. But it's less clear what Jesus means by the phrase born of water, and it's worth just spending a minute or two on, on that. Some think it's a reference to natural birth. And of course, in the process of natural birth, 
the amniotic fluid uh, breaks from the mother's womb prior to the birth of the child. And uh, some people think that what, what is being said here is that you need to be born physically and then you need to be born again spiritually. The difficulty with that view is that nowhere else in Scripture is water used uh, to depict or to describe natural birth, and so it would, it would be standing on its own largely here if it meant that, which would be unusual. There are a few references to water in the book of Songs of Solomon in connection, in connection with childbirth and, and so on, but I think it's referring to something different than, uh, than this, and I don't think that, 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 that the two are the same. Others think that maybe the water is the water of baptism, and so therefore we need to be baptized and we need to experience this new life of the Holy Spirit. Now, uh, both Carson and uh, my favorite Scottish preacher, Sinclair Ferguson, uh, think that that is not right um, for, for, for a number of reasons. And some of the reasons that I would flag up, are we really saying that you need to be baptized before you are a Christian? And where does that leave folks like the thief on the cross who was promised by Jesus as he uh, utter, gasped his final breath before he left this world and entered the next, Jesus says to him, today you'll be with me in paradise. Uh, he didn't have a chance to be baptized. And, and what about the Philippian jailer when Paul burst into, uh, into his, wherever that room was in the prison where the Philippian jailer was, and the Philippian jailer says, well, what must… Actually, the Philippian jailer burst into Paul's cell. What must I do to be saved? And, and Paul didn't say, be baptized. He said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And, and so it's clear to me that belief in the Lord Jesus Christ is the very foundation of the Christian experience. I think the best explanation of what is meant by the use of the word water here is to see it as John or Jesus building, drawing on Old Testament imagery. Because in the Old Testament, Ezekiel, the great prophet Ezekiel, spoke about a coming day when God would do this. Let me read it directly, Ezekiel 36, 25, 27. I will sprinkle you with clean water, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you, and I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. So he's gone, Ezekiel, speaking to these idolatrous Israelites, is looking for the coming of a day when God was going to revolutionize the hearts of His people. He would cleanse them and infuse them with new life. He would take out their stony, cold, dry hearts and give them uh, new hearts, hearts that loved God, hearts that followed God, hearts that trusted in the provision that God had made through the person of His Son. And I think that that's what Jesus is drawing on. And the, and the key to uh, that is the statement that Jesus makes in verse 10. He says, are you an Old, are you a, a, an old Testament scholar, a Bible teacher, a Pharisee, someone who understands and knows the Old Testament, and yet you don't know what I'm talking about when I say that you need to be born of water and of the Spirit? Don't you know that this is what Ezekiel spoke about in the Old Testament? So in relation to all of this, uh, let, let me just say that what is being spoken of here is what theologians refer to as regeneration. 
this coming of the Holy Spirit upon a person where new life is breathed into them, and where they embrace Christ and they begin to follow Christ and become disciples of Christ. And there needs to be a time in our lives when we are born again. There needs to be a time when we experience this new life of the Holy Spirit because we are born in sin and shapen in iniquity. We are, we are dead in trespasses and sins. That's what it says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. We are dead in trespasses and sins. And so for us to come to trust Christ and follow Christ, there needs to be a revolution. There needs to be the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit needs to come to our hearts and change us. Now, I don't think everybody's experience of that is identical. Some people can go back to a time in their lives and they can pinpoint it and say, that's when I was born again, that's when I trusted Christ, that's when I became a Christian. I think other people can't go back to an exact time in their lives. A friend of mine who's in, 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 in ministry now and uh, who actually came up through the church that I was once a minister of and entered the ministry, he said to me when I was chatting to him one day, we were actually interviewing him for church membership, and I said, he said to me, I don't know when I was born again. I don't know when I became a Christian. He said, at the beginning of the summer, I didn't believe. I didn't believe in God, and I didn't believe in Jesus, and I didn't believe in the significance of what He had accomplished on the cross. But at the end of the summer, I did believe. And I put my faith and trust in the work of Christ as my only basis for acceptance with God. And I, I, I came to believe that He was Lord and, and that I should follow Him and serve Him and obey Him. And I came to believe. And at the end of the summer, I sat down and realized I believe somewhere over the course of the summer. And I don't know where and I don't know how and I don't know when. But somewhere over the course of the summer, God changed me. And I was converted. I became a Christian. I was born again. I was regenerated. And, and the truth is, I honestly believe that not all of us have an identical experience, but what is absolutely fundamentally necessary is that all of us know that we have been born again, and that we have the new life of the Spirit, and that we are following Jesus. So, that's the first thing, what was needed. Here's the second thing, who needed it? And I think this is worth camping on for a minute or two. Um, the kind of person that Jesus said needed this experience. He was a Pharisee, which meant that he was deeply religious. Uh, Pharisees came into existence uh, shortly after the Hasmonean period where, uh, anyway, they recaptured the temple and they were concerned about the purity of Israel and they were concerned about Israel being exiled again, punished, judged by God again, and they were committed uh, to keeping the law so as to keep Israel pure to prevent the judgment of God falling on them again. So, some of the Pharisees had externalized religion. So, their religion was rule-keeping. So, they had all kinds of rules that they would keep. Like a lady couldn't look in the mirror on the Sabbath day. She might see a gray hair, pull it out. That would be work. So, no watching sport on a Sunday afternoon for these uh, Pharisees. They had externalized the law. They had a bunch of rules that they kept, and many of them were hypocrites. Many of them were hypocrites. Jesus referred to them on numerous occasions as hypocrites, but not all of them were hypocrites. 
Some of them were sincere and genuine. And I would be prepared to argue that Nicodemus was in that camp, sincere and genuine. And any time that he appears in the Gospels, he is extremely sincere and extremely genuine. He is mentioned again in John chapter 7, where he says to his Pharisaic colleagues, or his colleagues, uh, his, the other Pharisees, he says to them, he says to them, we should not judge someone until we have given them a fair hearing. Doesn't that sound like a fairly reasonable person to you? We should not judge someone until we've given them a fair hearing. In John chapter 19, he appears again, and he, with Joseph of Arimathea, takes the body of Jesus down from the cross and tenderly lays it in a tomb. And for someone to do that, someone who had been handed over to the Romans by the Jewish authorities, for one of them, then to go and take the body of Jesus down from the cross and lay it in a tomb… I mean, this, this is a genuine, sincere Pharisee, I, I would be prepared um, to argue. He is fastidiously righteous. He attended the temple every Sabbath. He was there every week without fail. He not only reads the Bible, he's a Bible teacher. It's just not possible to have more respect for the Torah than, than Nicodemus had. He, he not only respected every word in it, he respected every letter in it. And he could recite almost, well, he could recite large chunks of the Old Testament, and he could explain in detail any part of the Old Testament. He dressed like a religious person. He had his flowing robes, he had his headdress, he had the law in a little box, phylacteries on his forehead. Yeah, he, he had all of the marks that would distinguish him from the ordinary run-of-the-mill Israelite. When he was in a crowd, people would immediately know he's a religious man. He was a member of the ruling council, the Sanhedrin. It wasn't possible to climb any higher within Judaism than the Sanhedrin. He was at the very height of success religiously. He is a fundamental conservative. His dress, his behavior, his scruples all give him away as deeply, deeply religious. Yet it was to this man that Jesus said, you must be born again. Now, that was shocking news for Nicodemus. He would not have expected Jesus to say that. You must be born again or you won't even see the kingdom of God. Listen to what the Mishnah says. It says, the Mishnah taught that all Jews all Jews would be admitted to the kingdom at the end of the age unless they were guilty of deliberate apostasy or extraordinary wickedness. So all Jews would enter the kingdom unless they were guilty of apostasy, deliberately turning their back on Judaism, or secondly, extraordinary wickedness. And here's a sincere Pharisee sitting before Jesus, talking to him, and Jesus says, unless you're born again, you will never see the kingdom of God. Jesus is making it clear that this is an experience that Nicodemus and his friends, his Pharisaic friends, desperately need. Um, you know, the implications of this in the 21st century are fairly stark. You can come to church every Sunday you can come to church every Sunday. You can dress like a Christian, whatever a Christian dresses like, I'm not sure. But you can, you can wear the appropriate religious dress, 
come to church every Sunday. You can read the Bible. You can read the Bible. This man read his Old Testament and not really know what it is to be born again, not really know the life of the Spirit within you. And it's for all of us to ask, and it's for me to ask, and it's for you to ask, are we born again? Jesus tells this religious man, you need to be born again. So, what is needed? Why, uh, what was needed? Who needed it? And finally, why it was needed? The reason that Nicodemus needs it is because he will not see the kingdom of God without it. Unless, unless he is born again, he will not see the kingdom of God without it. So, what is meant by the kingdom of God? What is it that he won't see? What is it that he will never be part of? Well, the term kingdom of God is not found in the Old Testament, but it does speak about the Lord's kingdom and the Lord reigning and the Lord being king. And there is a sense in which the Lord is king over the whole earth, isn't he? Either he is God of all or he is not God at all. But in the Old Testament, there's also this looking forward to the coming to, the, to a coming day when a son of David will set up a kingdom which will be eternal. So, you've got it in Isaiah chapter 9, unto us a son is born, unto us a, unto us a child is given. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And uh, he will be called wonderful. The government will be on his shoulders. He'll set up this eternal kingdom. Now, Jesus is talking about that kingdom, and He says to Nicodemus, this religious teacher who's immersed in the Old Testament, He says to him, you'll not see that kingdom. You'll not be part of that kingdom. You'll not enter that kingdom unless you're born again. Now, there's two parts, two dimensions to the kingdom of God that I, I should just quickly pick up on, and one is that the kingdom is already here. The kingdom has already come the kingdom exists wherever God rules. And the kingdom exists in this church. The kingdom has been set up in people's hearts. Wherever people have bowed and surrendered to the lordship of Christ, His kingdom exists. Jesus is their king. It's not a geographical thing. It's a spiritual thing. Didn't Jesus say that to Pilate? My kingdom is not of this world. And there's a future dimension to the kingdom. There's a sense in which it will culminate in the new heaven and the new earth, wherein dwells righteousness. It will culminate in, 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 in that time when the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our God and of His Christ, and He will reign forever. That will be the culmination of His kingdom. But the kingdom already exists. So Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, you won't be part of this kingdom that exists now. You won't be part of my kingdom. You won't see it. You won't understand it. You won't see it. You won't understand it. And you won't enter the final kingdom unless you're born again. Unless you're born again. That's why this is so important, this chapter. Without it, you won't be part of God's kingdom. When I was a little boy, I went on a school trip to Cramond, or not to Cramond Island, but to the Bass Rock. So I lived in Aberlady, went on a school trip to the Bass Rock. We went out with a little uh, man on a boat, and he had a big bushy beard. I remember that much. I can't remember much more about him, but I do remember he had a bit of a reputation. And he told us, 
I'm leaving this pier when he dropped us off at the Bass Rock. I'm leaving this pier at two o'clock. And if you're not back at two o'clock, I'll go without you. And I knew if I, I wasn't back at two o'clock, I was doomed. I would stay on that thing all night and wait for him to come back the next day. He, there's no way he would come back for me. So I scarcely left the pier. I was just a young boy, just waited for him. Because I knew no matter what else happened on that trip, the one thing I needed to get right was I needed to be at that pier at two o'clock. That, that's, that's the importance, the significance of this chapter. We cannot afford to get this wrong. This is absolutely essential to being part of God's kingdom. We must be born again. Secondly then, and very quickly, uh, the explanation that Jesus gives. He says, flesh gives birth to flesh, and spirit gives birth to spirit. And then he goes on to explain uh, what he means by that. It, it was cool evening. It's at nighttime in Jerusalem, Jesus sitting on a housetop talking to Nicodemus, and he uses the wind as an illustration of how the Spirit of God works in people's hearts. He says, verse 8, the wind blows where it likes and you can hear it, but you cannot tell where it's coming from or where it's going to. We can't see the wind, can we? We can hear it and we can see the effects of it, but we can't see it. We can't see the force that is bending the trees in two. We can't see the force that is driving the waves against the harbor wall with such fury and violence. But we can see the effects of the wind. And, and that's the point I think Jesus is making here. We can't see where the Spirit is coming from and we can't see where the Spirit is going to next. But we can see the effects of the life-giving transformation of the Spirit as He comes upon people and transforms them and changes them, and, and, and they become people who put their confidence in Christ and His work on the cross, and they make Jesus their Lord, and they follow Him. We can see the effects of the life-changing power of the Spirit, and, and that's how we know if people are born again or not, because we see and we hear the difference. When I was a youngster, um, my, I lived just down the coast here a little bit, and my parents uh, were not Christians. In fact, my parents were a bit of a mess. Their marriage was a mess. And to, move, to turn over a new life, a new ch chapter, a new leaf, they moved to the Republic of Ireland. And when we got there, I was only there a short time, my father became a Christian. Out of the blue, my father became a Christian. He heard this message about Jesus how he needs to put his trust in Jesus, and he became a Christian, and it revolutionized, revolutionized him, it revolutionized our family. And I didn't understand what was at work. I, I didn't understand the power that had got a hold of his heart and changed him and breathed new life into him. I didn't understand what power it was that made him want to go to church rather than run a thousand miles from it. I didn't understand that, but I could see the evidence of it. And that's the point that Jesus is making when he says, about the wind. And, and, and so, have we been changed by the Holy Spirit's life-changing power? We come to embrace Christ and follow Him and serve Him. We become His disciples. The last thing is the illustration. Nicodemus still is struggling to understand Jesus, and he says, how can this be? And, and it's at that point that Jesus rebukes him and says, you're a teacher in Israel, you're a teacher in Israel and you don't understand this? 
You don't understand that I am talking, when I, when I talk about being born of water and the Spirit, you don't understand that I am talking in the very words of Ezekiel, and you're a teacher of Israel, you're an Old Testament expert scholar, and you still don't get it? I think that Nicodemus doesn't speak after that, incidentally. It's a monologue. Jesus speaks to Nicodemus. And I think that Nicodemus is a, has got what, what we would call ap- apocalyptic leanings. So why, why do you think that? I think that because the theme that Jesus picks up on is the kingdom, the kingdom. I think Nicodemus was interested in the kingdom. And I think Nicodemus was wondering, is Jesus going to be this son of David that will stamp his authority on the world with great might? Is he going to be the one that will set up this kingdom? And then Jesus tells him what kind of Messiah he is going to be, the son of man. Because in Daniel, the son of man is given a kingdom by the ancient of days. And Jesus says, you know what the son of man is going to do? He's going to be lifted up. And he's pointing forward to what will happen when he leaves this world, when he would be lifted up, not just on the cross, but primarily on the cross, but not just on the cross. He'd be lifted up on the cross, but also lifted up in his resurrection and lifted up in his ascension and glorified. The Son of Man will be lifted up, and those who look to him, those who believe in him, will have everlasting life. That's what Jesus says to him. And he draws this analogy between the Son of Man being lifted up and the brazen serpent that, that's, that we read about in Numbers chapter 21, verses 4 to 9. Remember the brazen serpent? The, the Israelites had been delivered from their bondage in Egypt, where they were throwing their baby boys to the crocodiles in the River Nile, and they were forced to bake those bricks under the heat of the Egyptian sun all day long. And God had heard their cries and delivered them from their slavery. But they had grumbled and mumbled all the way out of Egypt. And, and in an attempt to correct them, God sent a plague of poisonous snakes amongst them. Of course, they repented. Moses prayed for them. And God instructed Moses, well, here's how they can be healed. Make a brazen or a bronze serpent. Raise it in the middle of the camp. And when people look at the serpent, when they believe that God will impart healing to them through the serpent, by looking to the serpent, then they will be healed. And that's exactly what happened. And Jesus is drawing a parallel between Himself and the brazen serpent as He is raised up on the cross. As people look to Him and believe that He died for their sins, that He bore their punishment, that He became their Savior. As they look to Jesus and begin to put their trust in what He did and begin to follow Him, they will have eternal life. Jesus not only tells Nicodemus what he needs, it seems to me at least that he tells him what he needs to do and how he can go about acquiring this new birth. He needs to look to Christ. That, that's what it seems to me like. It's not just this is what you need, it's this is what you must do. You must look away to the Son of Man. Now, You know, I I don't really know whether Nicodemus ever did look to Jesus in faith, savingly and in faith. The Bible doesn't tell us. I said to you earlier that there's three times when he appears in John's gospel here, 
in John 7 and in John 19. John 7, he just says to his friends, we better give people a fair hearing before we judge them. And then in John 19, where he takes the body of Jesus down from the cross. I don't know whether he ever looked to Jesus. I hope so, don't you? I really hope so. I hope having had a conversation with Jesus, having thought, having been confronted with the new birth, I sure hope that he came to a place where he put his trust in Christ and began to follow Jesus. But I don't know, because the Bible doesn't tell us. Maybe the fact that John included him in his gospel is an indication that he went on to become a prominent figure in the church. But the truth is, I don't know. But maybe that's purposeful. Because as we think about Nicodemus and wonder, I wonder, I wonder, did he ever put his faith in Christ? Maybe God wants us to think about ourselves, because we can't fix Nicodemus out, but we can fix ourselves out, can't we? We can't make sure that we have put our trust in Christ, that we have been born again, that we have experienced this new life in, in, in Christ. You know, here is the very heart of uh, the Christian experience, and the three things that we've looked at are fairly simple. We looked at the declaration, you must be born again. You must be born again. Without it, you won't see the kingdom of heaven. You won't be part of the kingdom of heaven unless you experience the new transforming life of the Spirit. There's the illustration. How does it all work? We can't see who the Spirit is working on. We can't see who the Spirit's working on next. We can't see that God is at work in people's hearts. Even this morning, I can't see that. You can't see that. But we can see the effects of that when people come to trust Christ and follow Christ and, and, and make Christ their Lord. We can see the effects of that. And finally, there was the illustration. What a wonderful illustration of Jesus uh, that Jesus draws on as He thinks about the brazen serpent and He thinks about Himself being raised up at the end of His life on a cross and then in His resurrection and then in His ascension. And, and how people need to look savingly towards Him on the cross, believing that He died for them. You know, I want to tell you this, and I'll sit down, but this is the truth. I, I'm not making this up. This is the truth. When I reach the end of my life, and God says to me, well, Murdoch, why do you think you should get in here? I, I've preached more sermons than I care to remember. That's the truth. I've pastored two churches. I, I'm the principal of a Bible college. But I won't mention any of that. Not a single thing of it, because most of it was motivated by sinful motivation. The only, thing that I will, the only thing that I will mention is that Christ died for my sins and was raised again for my justification. And I believe that He bore the punishment that I deserved in my place so that I could go free. And all of His goodness has been transferred to my account so that I am acceptable to you in Him. That's my only hope. I don't have any other hope. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling.